the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Later this hour, we'll talk with Glenn Sunshine. He's the co-author, along with Jerry Trousdale, of the book titled The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. Glenn Sunshine is a professor of history at Central um, Uh, Connecticut State University, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and the founder and president of Every um, Square Inch Ministries. He's an award-winning author. He has uh, taught seminars on worldview, church history, and theology all across the country, in Europe and in Asia. His co-author and his wife were missionaries among a Muslim people group in Africa. He pastored two mission-sending churches, co-founded Final Command Ministries, and since 2005, he's been the director of International Ministries for New Generations. He's also the author of best-selling book, Miraculous Movements. And uh, we'll talk with uh, Glenn Sunshine about the book the two of them collaborated on, The Kingdom Unleashed. That's coming up later this hour. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, John Durham, the U.S. attorney, reviewing the origins of the 2016 counterintelligence investigation into Russia and the Trump campaign, is probing a wider timeline than previously known, according to multiple senior administration officials. It's being reported that uh, Durham would be reviewing the days leading up to the 2016 election and through the inauguration. However, based on what he's been finding, he's now expanded his investigation, adding agents and resources, the senior administration officials say. Well, the timeline has grown from the beginning of the probe through the election and now has included a post-election timeline through the spring of 2017 up to when Robert Mueller was named special counsel. And the White House said in a defiant eight-page letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and top Democrats on Tuesday that it will not participate in their illegitimate and unconstitutional impeachment inquiry, charging that the proceedings have run roughshod over congressional norms and the president's due process rights. The letter written by White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, and obtained by media tees up a head-on collision with Democrats in Congress who fired off a slew of subpoenas in recent days concerning the president's alleged effort to get Ukraine to investigate a political foe during a July phone call with a Ukrainian leader. This means no additional witnesses under administrative purview will be permitted to appear in uh, uh, in front of, con- of Congress rather, or comply with document requests, a senior White House official told the Associated Press. The White House argues the formal impeachment inquiry is not legitimate because the House has not voted to begin an investigation into Trump. Pelosi argues that the House is acting within the rules under the Constitution to conduct oversight of the executive branch. House Democrats have subpoenaed Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to Europe, the European Union, 
They're testifying in documents related to their inquiry on the president's phone call with the Ukrainian president. The Trump administration ordered Mr. Sondland not to appear at a scheduled hearing. Closed door deposition on Tuesday. The president tweeted that he would love to send Ambassador Sondland, but unfortunately, he would be testifying before a totally compromised kangaroo court. Also, the Senate Intelligence Committee on Tuesday issued a report urging the president to warn the public about efforts by foreign governments to interfere in U.S. elections and take steps to prevent hostile nations from using social media to meddle in the 2020 vote. Also, in an attempt to show Democrats hypocrisy, Tucker Carlson on Tuesday's edition of his program highlighted a 2004 comment from John Kerry, then a candidate for president, claiming foreign leaders told him how much they wanted him to oust then-President George W. Bush. When Robert Mueller met with President Trump back in May of 2017, he was pursuing the open post as the director of the FBI something the former Russian probe special counsel denied under oath during congressional testimony this summer. Multiple administration sources say these officials uh, say that the um, government documents showed Mueller was pursuing the job as a candidate himself. At the time of the infamous May 16th, 2017 meeting, James Comey had been fired as FBI director. Mueller was named special counsel to oversee the Trump-Russia probe the very next day. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver is going to Shanghai to try to repair The uh, league's relationship with China, according to TMZ, Silver spoke with the media on Tuesday to discuss China's essentially blackballing of Houston Rockets after team manager uh, Daryl Morey tweeted uh, support for protesters in Hong Kong. China's Basketball Association suspended cooperation with the Rockets over the tweet. In addition, the tweet drew a public rebuke from the Rockets owner, Tillman Fertitti, and an apologetic initial statement from the NBA, which in turn rankled several U.S. politicians who felt the league cared more about its financial interests and was kowtowing to a brutal regime known for human rights violations. Silver said he won't bend when it comes to protecting freedom of expression. The NBA will not put itself in a position of regulating what players, employers and team owners say or will not say on this. um, These issues, he said, we simply could not operate that way. So we'll see what happens with this meeting that's coming up. Johnson and Johnson will uh, still reeling from settling two Ohio opioid related lawsuits for more than 20 million dollars was slapped with an $8 billion judgment on Tuesday. Now, the first was $20 million. We're now talking about $8 billion judgment uh, over its um, antipsychotic drug, Risperdal. A jury in Philadelphia, according to legal website Law360, hit the drug giant with a staggering payout after agreeing the company had recklessly ignored the risks that the antipsychotic drug, Risperdal, um, could lead to breast um, growth and in adolescents, uh, adolescent boys, rather, as it published the medication for use in children. The drug comes from Johnson & Johnson subsidiary, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Inc. The judgment came about on uh, behalf of Nicholas Murray, a Maryland resident who grew breasts after he started using Risperdal as a nine-year-old in 2003 to help control symptoms related to autism. A newly unearthed document shows that Ukrainian officials had opened a new probe into the firm linked to Hunter Biden months before President Trump's phone call with that country's leader. Now, how that is relevant to what's happening now, I'm not altogether clear, but it is an interesting fact to consider. The Washington Times reports that former Republican Representative Trey Gowdy has been tapped to serve as outside counsel to President Donald Trump as the House impeachment inquiry expands. 
And Supreme Court uh, has refused to throw out New York gun rights case, rejecting New York City's attempt to legally dodge uh, the issue. Trump has awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom to former Attorney General Edwin Meese. And some of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's electronic surveillance activities violated the constitutional privacy rights of Americans swept up in a controversial foreign intelligence program. A secretive surveillance court has now ruled. Turkey has launched airstrikes on northern Syria after the president pulled back U.S. troops. And the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods told CBS News this weekend that his decision to stop selling certain guns and hire lobbyists to push for new gun bans have cost his company roughly $250 million. Ed Stack also said the company destroyed $5 million worth of rifle inventory because uh, Stack believed no one should be allowed to own them. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, the countdown is on for the night. See the 2019. You put the 20 before the 19. The 2019 Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. 93.9 KPDQ wants to help you say thank you to your pastor, ministry leaders, and their spouses uh, for all the hard work they do. We encourage you to invite them to our Pastors Appreciation Breakfast, sponsored by Adventist Health, Family Life, Corbin University, Parkview Christian Retirement Community, Africa New Life, Thunderbird Consulting, and Living Wholehearted's Encourage 2020. That's coming up on Tuesday. Tuesday, October 15th at the Oregon Golf Club in West Lynn. Um, it's completely free. It includes a delicious breakfast, fellowship, a special message special message from Dr. David Jeremiah from Turning Point Ministries. Music presented by Undaunted. Well, featuring um, a couple of friends of mine and myself, Deborah Greenwich and Jerutha Greenwich. Uh, you can RSVP at kpdq.com. Be sure your pastor and those who work among you are aware and encourage them to join us. We just want to say thank you and acknowledge um, that they are worth the call. All right. Uh, Looking again at some of the headlines, the U.S. saw a record 2.4 million reported cases of sexually transmitted diseases. I understand it's now referred to as SDIs, uh, sexually transmitted infections, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis in 2018, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the sexual revolution, the gift that just keeps giving. Nearly 800,000 Pacific Gas and Electric customers are preparing for their power to be intentionally cut for what could be the largest deliberate power shutoff in California's history. On this day in 1776, a group of Spanish missionaries settled in present-day San Francisco. And on this day in history, 1936, the first generator at Boulder, later Hoover Dam, becomes, or rather begins, transmitting electricity to Los Angeles. On this day in 1974, businessman Oscar Schindler, uh, credited with saving about 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust, dies in Frankfurt, West Germany. At his request, he is buried in Jerusalem. And on this day in history, 2009, then-President Barack Obama wins the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize for what the Norwegian Nobel C- Committee calls his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. This, of course, was before he had the opportunity to do any of that. They were very hopeful. And on this day in history, 2012, former Penn State assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky is sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison following his conviction on 45 counts of sexual abuse of boys. Mm. Well, President Trump called Turkey's ongoing military assault in Syria a bad idea today. 
As activists and War Monitor uh, reported, at least seven civilians killed in the strikes. The president's comments come hours after the Turkish president, Erdogan, announced the launch of Operation Peace Spring, a mission that will neutralize terror threats against Turkey and lead to the establishment of a safe zone, facilitating the return of Syrian refugees to their homes, end quote, escalating the longstanding feud between Ankara and Kurdish forces. While the president was heavily criticized throughout the week following his decision on Sunday to pull American troops out of the northern part of Syria, leaving the Kurdish forces, who've been longtime U.S. allies in the fight against ISIS in Syria, in peril. Ankara views the Syrian Kurdish forces as terrorists allied with the Kurdish insurgency within Turkey. The United States does not endorse this attack and has made it clear to Turkey that this operation is a bad idea, the president said in a statement released by the White House. Turkey has committed to or rather has committed to protecting civilians, protecting religious minorities, including Christians, and ensuring no humanitarian crisis takes place. And we will hold them to this commitment. End quote. Well, that's, again, very optimistic and hopeful. I'm not sure that isn't misplaced. There are no American soldiers in the area, he went on to say. Well, a spokesman for the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces said Turkish warplanes on Wednesday have started to carry out to airstrikes on civilian areas, causing a huge panic among people of the region. The Kurds requested air support from American forces in response to the strikes, but U.S. military officials say that Trump has ordered them to not get involved. A small group of Turkish forces first entered northeastern Syria on Wednesday morning near the town of Tal Abyad and Ras Alyan, according to Bloomberg, Turkey's state-run um, news agency, later said that Turkish artillery units have been shelling suspected Syrian Kurdish targets in um, that area, while two mortar shells fired from uh, Ras Al Ain struck the Turkish border town. Uh, I won't even attempt to pronounce that name. Well, the British-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says one fighter from the Syrian Democratic Forces has been killed so far. Six others have been wounded. An SDF spokesperson also says two civilians have been killed as a result of the Turkish bombardment of the village and four civilians were killed in another area. The developments come after the Kurds called on uh, their people Wednesday to move toward the border with Turkey and carry out acts of resistance. We call upon our people of all ethnic groups to move toward areas close to the border with Turkey to carry out acts of resistance during this sensitive historical time, read a statement from the local civilian Kurdish authority known as the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. In all its uh, calls for general mobilization, the Kurds also urged the international community to live up to its responsibilities as humanitarian catastrophe might befall our people in the region. The stark message was in contrast to what was being said Wednesday north of the border. The Turkish presidency communications director called on the international community in the Washington Post in an op-ed to rally behind Ankara, which he said would also take over the fight against Islamic State terrorists. Turkey also is aiming to neutralize Syrian Kurdish militants in northeast Syria and to liberate the local population from the yoke of the armed thugs. That's a quote. Turkish officials who spoke to Bloomberg on condition of anonymity say the offensive will target Syrian border towns first to minimize any chance of a Kurdish state growing near to its border. And expectations of the invasion rose after the president on Sunday abruptly announced that American troops would step aside ahead of the Turkish push a shift in U.S. policy that essentially abandoned the Turkish, or rather the serious Syrian Kurds. 
Hillary Clinton could beat President Trump again if she decides to run for president in 2020, the former Secretary of State said on Tuesday in an interview. She appeared on PBS NewsHour and was asked about Trump's antagonistic attitude toward her after he goaded Clinton to run for the White House again. She called him obsessed for mocking her email scandal and said she could beat Trump in an electoral uh, rematch if she ever decided to jump back in. In, it truly is remarkable how obsessed he remains with me, she said. But this latest tweet is so typical of him. Nothing has been more examined and more looked at than my emails, except for the 30,000 missing. We all know that, she went on to say. So he's either lying or delusional or both. So maybe there does need to be a rematch, Clinton said. Obviously, I can beat him again. But just seriously, I don't understand. I don't think anybody understands what motivates him other than personal grievance, other than seeking adulation. End quote. Well, Clinton, who defeated Trump in the popular vote in 2016, also responded to the challenge on Twitter after uh, Trump called her out by name, suggesting she tried to steal the nomination away from Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she claimed that um, those who were expecting the president to change his behavior upon assuming office got a rude awakening and that what uh, you see with Trump is what you get. So far, no indication that she actually intends uh, to run again. Uh, just one fine point. Um, we elect presidents using the Electoral College, so you don't win unless you win the electoral vote. And her strategy for the electoral vote uh, came up wanting. Rashida Tlaib was right, as it turns out. The Democrats have come together to impeach the president, who she refers to as, well, I won't repeat how she speaks, but uh, she promised, uh, well, back when the party took control of the House uh, 18 months ago. Well, the effort comes some 20 years after the last attempt by a House majority to remove a president of the opposite party. Congressional Republicans impeached Bill Clinton for crimes they claimed he committed to hide his affair with Monica Lewinsky. It's hard not to recall that history now, especially if you were here at the time. As we prepare for another round, what lessons can we glean from the 98 2000 uh, debacle that we uh, might apply to 2019. Who really won the Clinton impeachment? Or perhaps the most relevant similarity between then and now is the divide within the country. Clinton's impeachment highlighted a split between political elites and the public, and this split has also come to define the populist uprising of the past decade. Political elites in the late 90s obsessed over impeachment, and it informed much of their posturing during the 2000 campaign. The public at large, by contrast, seemed unmoved by the whole thing. At the top of the national political hierarchy, it began a feeding frenzy among Beltway journalists, pundits, uh, politicians, onlookers. uh, the details held the uh, hyper-connected spellbound, and they tuned in religiously to cable news to keep tabs on the latest developments. It was like the O.J. Simpson trial, which was then of recent memory. The Clinton impeachment also shaped campaign decisions in the 2000 presidential race. George W. Bush, Al Gore won relatively easy nomination battles among party constituencies that, at least on the issues of impeachment, were internally homogenous. Neither campaign had to deal with the matter in much detail. When the general election came, impeachment set the tone of both campaigns, even if they avoided um, much direct discussion of it. We'll return to that a bit later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll talk with uh, Glenn Sunshine, co-author of The Kingdom Unleashed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and his co-author are authors of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. 
Jerry Trousdale and Glenn Sunshine explore God's kingdom movements. Central to every movement are the core values of the kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaimed and modeled throughout his ministry. Well, the pair spent three years researching why only a few such movements are happening in North America and in Western Europe. They identify historical and worldview issues that hinder kingdom movements in the West. Uh, he is um, Kingdom Unleashed is composed of five sections. We'll talk about them. And they point out that those of us living in the global north are observing an incre- ever-increasing cascade of spiritual discouragement and tragedy in our world, while our brothers and sisters in the global south are experiencing what Jesus meant when he said that kings and prophets longed to experience the kingdom coming in such away. Mm. Well, my guest is Glenn Sunshine. He is a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and the founder and president of Every Square Inch Ministries. He is an award-winning author and has taught seminars on worldview, church history, and theology across the U.S. and in Europe and Asia. His co-author, Jerry Trousdale, um, is a, has served as a missionary among a Muslim people group in Africa. He pastored two mission-sending churches, co-founded Final Command Ministries, and since 2005 has been Director of International Ministries for New Generations. We are delighted to have uh, Glenn Sunshine join us today to talk about this remarkable book that is challenging and joyful and all of those things in between. The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. Glenn Sunshine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I I really appreciate it. Uh, Let's talk about what a kingdom movement is. It may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. uh, And how does that differ from the church at large or the church uh, with a small c? Well, when when we're talking about kingdom movements, what we're talking about is a situation where the gospel is spreading virally where it is growing extremely fast, new churches are being founded, disciples are being made, and it just builds its own momentum. You make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, churches that plant churches that plant churches. Um, In order for something to be, there are a couple of different definitions of what a movement is. Um, A thousand baptisms in a short period of time, a hundred new churches in a space of, uh, again, a year or so, those kinds of things. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the world today. We are seeing that, and as we rejoice in how the church is growing elsewhere, we look closer to home uh, in Europe and here at home, and we wonder, why are we not seeing that kind of exponential growth here? And that's certainly one of the subjects that you uh, cover in your book. Yes, um, it turns out that when you take a look at the church in Europe, it's really seriously in decline, and in North America, we are anything but healthy. Um, at best, you can say that the church has stagnated here. You're not seeing really significant growth at all um, in any sector of the uh, of the American church. And the reasons really have to do with a lot of things about American culture that have crept into the church and that have uh, really limited uh, our effectiveness uh, and, frankly, the Holy Spirit's work through us. Your first chapter is titled 50 Thrilling and Disturbing Years. Uh, First of all, why 50 years, and what can we be thrilled about, and what will we find most disturbing? Well, when you take a look, the the reason why we picked 50 years is that in the last 50 years, this is the period in which we've really seen the explosion of movements around the world. Um, 
every segment of the Muslim world has got movements in it. We're seeing explosive growth happening in China and in India and in Indonesia, all through Africa, Latin America. The statistics are absolutely staggering. It is the, the gospel is growing faster now than it ever has in human history. Absolutely but, remarkable. But <laughs> that's the other part of the story. But the other part of the story is that it's all happening in what we used to call it the developing world. Now uh, the term of art is the global south. So when we, when we use global south, if you're more familiar with third world, developing world, that's really what we're thinking mm-hmm. of. All of this growth is happening in that part of the world. In North America, for example, we're holding roughly steady at about 20% of the population going to church regularly on Sunday. But this is happening in large part because we're getting immigration, legal and illegal, we're getting immigration coming in from countries where church attendance is much higher. So actually, it is the immigrant population that is propping up our 20% number. And even there, if you if, if you just consider it at 20% and ignore the immigrant part of it, it's stagnant. It means that we're absolutely flat. And yet, in contrast to this, you're seeing this unbelievable explosion of growth everywhere else. In the first six chapters, or I should say chapter two through six of the book, you really address the reasons for this weakness of the church in the global north, the place from which much of the gospel was sent uh, into the areas that are now exploding in in terms of responding to the gospel is now so weak that, you know, missionaries are coming from some of those places hoping to have an influence uh, here. What are some of the reasons that uh, you identify in the book in these first chapters? Well, we... The first one that I would start with, which is actually the one we we do first in the book, is uh, a total lack of prayer. Everywhere where you see movements growing, there is an incredible amount of prayer going on. Um, and in fact, they will tell you that nothing happens without abundant, focused prayer. And yet, according to uh, Barna, the average American Christian prays something like four to six minutes a day, and that includes grace at meals. You know, we, frankly, we don't believe in prayer, because if we did, we'd do it more. And yet, when you look at the Global South, that's, that is the lifeblood of the movements there. Mm-hmm. Describe for so, us the contrast between our two to three, four minutes and what's happening elsewhere where the kingdom of God is advancing? Well, if you go to West Africa, for example, um, where Jerry worked and where I have visited, the well, I'll just read you some of what they're doing for prayer. This is their regular prayer routine. Uh, annually, they have 21 days of fasting and prayer in all churches starting on January 10th. Now, for them, a fast is one meal in the evening. Uh, monthly, one Friday a month, uh, half or a whole night of prayer, Every Wednesday or Thursday, fasting um, and prayer, um, daily 90 minutes of prayer meetings at 40 prayer centers in five countries, uh, weekdays, all ministry offices and schools stop at noon for 30 minutes of midday intercession. The last day of the month, all Christ followers go out and ta- engage their neighbors with prayer. Um, and then the last three days of December are, are more Thanksgiving and prayer. This is just sort of the regular thing for them. And they have prayer centers that operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in three-hour shifts. People come in every three hours, and they continue prayer nonstop. Uh, This kind of thing is absolutely unheard of in the United States, with very, very few exceptions. Yeah, with a few exceptions. 
for yeah, what are so, they praying? Yeah. Because my guess is some of our listeners are thinking, I have a hard time praying for five minutes. How, how, what, for what are they praying during these lengthy periods of time, corporately and, uh, and individually? What does their prayer it, reflect? Well, the, the, they actually use a, in, when there's a public prayer meeting specifically, they use a, a system that actually started in the Korean churches, where they have a prayer leader who will have a list of things that are to be prayed for, and he will say, okay, now we're going to pray for this. And then for just a couple of minutes, everybody in the room prays for that. They actually all do it out loud simultaneously, uh, which sounds like it would be chaotic, but actually it doesn't really feel that way at all. In a lot of ways, when I was there, it was sort of like a soft murmuring going on around you. But then after just a couple of minutes, they announce the next prayer topic, and then you move to that, and so on. So you go through a cycle like this um, where... You don't spend so much time on one prayer that one prayer point that your mind wanders. You can be focused in on it for, like I said, just a couple of minutes, and then you move on to the next. So they have all of this organized. They know what they're going to be praying for ahead of time. You know, the, the prayer leader knows what, what the different topics are going to be and then just guides the people into the, the prayer. That's one way of doing it. Um, for an American, what I would suggest is something like take the Lord's Prayer and think about what each phrase in the Lord's Prayer means, unpack it, and pray around it, or do the same with Psalms, those kinds of things. This is the way you begin to learn to pray better. This is how the early church always prayed. Yeah. They used Psalms, they used the Lord's Prayer. Um, you, you, it can help you learn to pray. It can help you um, learn to focus your mind better, because you have something that you can look at to help you uh, train you in that. Yeah. Now, the average American's attention span is 8.3 seconds. Mm. So we have to train ourselves. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, The Kingdom Unleashed. Uh, my guest is Glenn Sunshine, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Glenn Sunshine, who is the co-author of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. In the first section of the book, he deals with some thrilling developments with regard to the kingdom of God, but some disturbing years as well. In the second section, he offers five categories of spiritual malpractice, as he puts them, that includes praying small prayers to an almighty God, among other things. In the third section of the book, and I found this especially um, interesting because you focus on uh, some of the key biblical elements of movements that all kingdom movements share and that you're seeing in parts of the world where the church and the kingdom is advancing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, it, I think the easiest way to explain it is that the reason why movements are happening right now um, in all these other parts of the world is simply because they're following Jesus' instructions. And frankly, we aren't. Well, there's a novel idea. Yeah. So if, if you, you know, Jesus explains how to make disciples. Uh, he does this in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, when he sends out the, the 12 and then the 72. Uh, he gives them a set of instructions for what they're supposed to do when they're out on their, their uh, preaching tours. And it turns out that in where we're seeing the, these movements happening, people are following Jesus's instructions. And, you know, they, you have to adapt them a little bit to their areas, you know, to the cultures. But overall, they're just looking at what Jesus says and figuring out, all right, how do I do that where I am? 
And surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit shows up when you actually obey what Jesus told you to do. Yeah, as promised. We've already talked a little bit about abundant prayer, which we sadly are not engaged in. What are some of the other elements that Jesus clearly taught that other uh, countries, cultures are uh, applying as they're following him that we might benefit from returning to in Scripture? Okay, well, what he tells them to do is to go into a village, find a person of peace. You know, what that means is someone who is spiritually open, who's willing to engage with you, that sort of thing. And then without going through all the details, he basically says, build a relationship with the person. This is what the the instructions about eating whatever's set in front of you. That's really, I think, the the core of what's happening there. Because in this culture, when you eat with somebody, it establishes a relationship with you. So you build a relationship with them. Through that individual, you build a relationship with the community. And then when you introduce the gospel, you introduce it to the entire community. You don't do individuals, ones and twos. You work through social networks. Then he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse lepers. Uh, the way I would translate that into English, if you, I don't know where your theology is in terms of miraculous stuff, but at the very least, what it's saying is show what the kingdom looks like. Show them the reality of the kingdom. Then tell them that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So it's a show-and-tell process. Uh, the gospel is, is holistic. It affects all of life. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling them, show them what the kingdom looks like in your midst, in their midst. Show them what this looks like. And that is, and then when you're working through the person of peace, this person who's spiritually open, that's what cracks the, the, uh, uh, the community open for the gospel. I think for many of us in 21st century America, we have come to believe, I know for some young people that sharing your faith is, is the wrong thing to do because it's culturally insensitive, while others are convinced that no one really wants to hear. It's a story that everyone already knows. It's a message they're familiar with, has already been rejected. And so there's a sense of defeat before we even consider carrying out what the scripture teaches, what Jesus himself taught. How do you respond uh, to those who hold to those points of view? Every time that Jesus looked out at the world around him, and talked to his disciples about it, he said something to the effect of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, or the fields are white with harvest. Jesus' eyes for the world, when he looks out at the world, he sees a world that's ripe. He sees a world that's ready. What he sees is missing are the workers. So what we need to do is develop Jesus' eyes for the world around us. You know, when you read Matthew 9, just before he sends out the, the 72, he looks at the world around him. He sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's a good description of our world. He has compassion on them, and he knows the solution is found in the kingdom, in presenting them with the kingdom. And that's when he tells the disciples to pray for workers, because there aren't enough to match the needs of the harvest. And then the next thing he does is he sends them out. One of your chapters. So, no, please go ahead. Yeah. So, so the point is, when you look at what Jesus does and how Jesus sees the world, we need to develop the same way of seeing it. We need to get his vision for the world around us. One of the chapters of your book is titled Equipping Ordinary People for the Impossible. And hearing you describe what he is calling us to for some it seems impossible, again, in 21st century America. And yet um, people, regular people who are, you know, precisely what the disciples in the early church was, um, need to be equipped for impossible uh, things. 
explain what you mean by that and how that equipping takes place. Well, one of the things that is, I would say, a pathology in the Western Church is we've picked up on the culture's focus on on professionalization. So we, rather than doing evangelism, we want to get somebody to come to church, and if we can get them to come to church, we'll let the pro bring them in. Uh, We subcontract spiritual development of our children to youth pastors. You know, things like this. We, we think in terms of you have to be a professional to do these things. That's not what Jesus tells us, and it's not what Paul tells us. If you read Ephesians 4, uh, Paul says God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The job of the church leadership is to be a coaching job, a mentoring job, teaching us to go out and do the work of ministry. They're not, they, we shouldn't think of the clergy, the, the church leaders, as the ministers. They're the coaches. We are the ministers because they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what we need to do is to recover this idea that, you know what, we're all, you know, the, uh, one of Martin Luther's great insights that, that every believer is a priest. We are all people who are called by God to do the work. And if you understand that, and if you understand, I would say, some very, very simple processes, things can start happening. In the final section of your book, um, you offer first steps, and there's so much more than our conversation will reflect. But um, let's talk about first steps. Where do we begin if we want to follow Jesus' words in, in building the kingdom and being a part of the kingdom, beginning, of course, with prayer? What are some of the other first steps that we should consider? Well, one of the, uh, if at all possible, it's nice to be able to visit a place to see movements in action. But um, beyond that, there's a very simple approach that's that we use, uh, that's used really in movements around the world called the Discovery Bible Study that can be used uh, with believers or non-believers. Start, start learning how to do a Discovery Bible Study. It's very, very simple. Um, You can even just Google it, and you'll find the basic questions. They can be applied to any passage of Scripture. There are Scripture sets that you can use for all kinds of different needs with Discovery Bible Studies or with unbelievers. So learn learn about that. Um, Find people who are are engaged in movements. There are plenty of people out there, even in the United States, there are quite a number of people who are available to coach, to mentor, to teach seminars, things like that. So... Um, these are a couple of the the core things that I would I would say. And then when we talk about you know the show and tell of the gospel, uh, there's a concept that they use in the global south that they call access ministries. An access ministry is simply a ministry that creates an opening where you can build relationships with people and uh, find those communities where you can share the gospel. I wish we had more time to talk, but I would add to that list reading The Kingdom Unleashed uh, to get a, a clear idea of some of the things that are happening in the world right now. Glenn Sunshine, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering.
Want to remind you that the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast is coming up next Tuesday morning. We want to make sure that you, if you're a pastor, a ministry leader, or a spouse, that you know you are welcome to join us. You are invited to join us. And if you have a pastor or a ministry leader that you'd like to join us, be sure to let them know. They can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. We encourage you to invite them to our Appreciation Breakfast. It's sponsored by Adventist Health, Family Life. Corbin University, Parkview Christian Retirement Community, Africa New Life, Thunderbird Consulting, and Living Wholeheartedz Encourage 2020. That's coming up Tuesday, October 15th at the Oregon Golf Club in West Lynn. Starts about 8 a.m. It's completely free. It includes a delicious breakfast, fellowship, a special message from Dr. David Jeremiah from Turning Point Ministries, music from Undaunted, a couple of friends of mine, Deborah Greenwich, Jerutha Greenwich, and myself. You can RSVP at kpdq.com. We hope to see you next Tuesday morning for our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. Well, we were talking before uh, my guest about uh, who really won the Clinton impeachment, if you can even ask a question in quite that way. One of the reasons that Nancy Pelosi was reluctant in moving forward with an impeachment inquiry is she recognized uh, the cost to Republicans for having gone that route. Bill Clinton won uh, by a significant margin. Now, Donald Trump is not Bill Clinton and things may not be exactly the same, but there are some things to be gleaned from that experience. And she attempted, at least for a period of time, to apply them uh, but but could not uh, it could not hold. Well, during this time, it was interesting um, that in the Washington Examiner, Examiner they pointed out that uh, President Bush, um, who was seeking uh, the um, uh, the presidency in the general election and his nomination acceptance speech delivered in Philadelphia in August of 2000, he didn't mention impeachment even once. Um, that doesn't mean it wasn't implicitly a major theme of the address. The future president gist, a line repeated several times, was this administration had its chance. Uh, they have not led. We will. Well, the closest Bush came to mentioning impeachment was in the um, backhanded compliment to Clinton. For eight years, he said, the Clinton-Gore administration has coasted through prosperity. The uh, path of least resistance is always downhill, but America's way is the rising road. This nation is daring and decent and ready for change. Our current president embodied the potential of a generation. So many talents, so much charm, such a great skill. But in the end, to what end? So much promise to no great purpose, end quote. Well, the clear implication was that while Bush did not intend to retaliate in um, by bringing up impeachment, he blamed it on Clinton and, by extension, Gore's personal squalor. Well, the Democratic convention, on the other hand, was held in Los Angeles a few weeks after the Republican gathering. Uh, gathering, It was similarly infused with implied references to impeachment. Viewers watching uh, Gore's nomination stage entrance were startled as he set the tone with a huge embrace of and smooch of his wife, Tipper. I don't know why that was shocking, but nonetheless, some said it was too much, but Gore was uh, making a clear point. He loved his wife was an entirely different man than his um, boss. Well, Gore's most significant gesture on the impeachment uh, came in his selection of a vice presidential running mate, Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut. Nobody thought Connecticut was a swing state in 2000. It had gone for Clinton over Bob Dole by 18 points in 96, and Bush was looking to build a winning coalition by poaching states in the South and the Midwest, not in New England. Well, Gore's choice of um, Lieberman wasn't about keeping the uh, nutmeg steak a state secure. It was about sending a message on impeachment. 
Lieberman famously denounced the behavior of President Clinton while calling for censure rather than impeachment. This uh, carved out a position most Democrats could accept, rejecting the indecency of Clinton's behavior while maintaining that it did not merit removal from office. Well, this election of uh, Lieberman signaled to voters that the vice president agreed, his presence in the administration notwithstanding. Well, it's hard not to look at anything uh, that was done between the winter of 98 and the fall of 2000 and not see impeachment at least somewhere in that background. But the question now, as uh, the possibility of the president being impeached, removal from office is a different matter. That's not likely to happen, but impeachment uh, certainly could. The evidence suggests, well, not much. Again, we're looking back at Bill Clinton. Donald Trump is a different uh, president. But nonetheless, Democrats picked up uh, House and Senate seats in 1998 midterm elections. A success that many pundits said reflected public disapproval of impeachment. But given the strength of the economy and uh, Clinton's high job approval numbers, Democratic gains should not have been unexpected. Republicans retained control of both congressional chambers, so it's hard to say 1998 was much of a referendum. For all the posturing in 2000, the story that year was mostly the same. Incumbent parties usually struggle to win three consecutive elections, which greatly disadvantaged Al Gore. But on the other hand, the economy was robust, the incumbent president was popular, and the nation was at peace, all of which disadvantaged Bush. Well, the final result, which was pretty much a tie, was more or less within the margins of what would um, otherwise uh, expect. Maybe there was a pro-Bush impeachment effect, but... His win might also have been due to the Republican campaign, which perceived emerging trends in the uh, uh, border south and in the Midwest that would form the foundation of the GOP uh, triumphs in the next two decades. Well, it would be easy to conclude that the impeachment was just another example of political elites riling themselves up for no purpose. But that would be, well, a wrong interpretation. The representative nature of our system guarantees a role for elites, at least broadly defined as those who commit themselves Uh, full-time to political uh, policy and politics. So it matters that they were obsessed with the impeachment, even if the public shrugged. And there's strong evidence to suggest that it had a policy effect. In the uh, pact, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, and the rivalry that defined a generation, Stephen Gillen, who's a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma, reported that before the Lewinsky imbroglio, Clinton and congressional Republicans were close to passing a sweeping overhaul of Social Security. But partisan warfare over Lewinsky undid that fragile and rather tentative compromise. They still haven't resolved it today. Both sides shared blame in this. Clinton for his uh, personal irresponsibility, Republicans for wrongly thinking that they could simultaneously try to remove the president and cut a deal with him. That, of course, did not work. It may be a miscalculation that's fairly typical in politics. Nobody can predict what the legacy of impeaching Donald Trump will be in 20 to 30 years. But it wouldn't be surprising if it was similar to the fallout from the Clinton impeachment, shutting down compromise on trade, infrastructure, gun control, for example. And perhaps the chief uh, consolation is that the two sides are already so polarized and so spiteful that hope of compromise is already dead anyway. Well, nonetheless, as the elites focus relentlessly on impeachment and again, elites being defined as those who are all in on politics. Other issues are going to be squeezed out of the uh, discourse, preventing Americans from engaging with one another on those issues, which is a necessary precondition for the compromise and consensus the broad middle of the country is so intent on finding but finds it so difficult to find. Henry Adams once remarked of the um, Gilded Age that it was an era poor in purpose and barren in results. Looking back on Clinton's second term, we might say likewise, 
and credit impeachment. Perhaps one day we'll say the same about Trump's tenure for the same reason. Poor in purpose, barren in results. We'll see if impeachment is the result this time around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. One of the questions that people are pondering as we watch the drama unfolding in Washington is, does an impeachment inquiry require a vote of the full House of Representatives? On the one hand, the president says, I'm not going to cooperate until that has happened. And some of his allies say the same. On the other hand, Nancy Pelosi says that's not necessary. This is an inquiry. And until we have sufficient evidence to um, move forward, we are going to continue with an inquiry, despite the fact that some are saying we have sufficient evidence to prove that he should be impeached. Well, so the question, does an impeachment inquiry require a vote of the full House of Representatives? Well, President Trump and the House Minority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, maintain that it does. Speaker Nancy Pelosi claims that it does not. Well, Pelosi is correct that the Constitution doesn't explicitly require it. It simply gives the House the sole power of impeachment. But the gravity of even considering impeachment, fundamental principles of fair and impartial justice, and preserving our Republican form of government, and yes, it is a Republican, a constitutional republic rather than a democracy. Uh, do require it. Now, Pelosi alone announced on September 25th that the House was opening an impeachment inquiry, which I thought had already been opened uh, by um, Representative Schiff. But uh, she directed six different committees to investigate the president. This is radically different and much more partisan than how this uh, series uh, series step was taken in the past on the few occasions. And there have only been three where this has uh, been the case. In 1974, rather, like today, a Republican was in the White House and Democrats controlled the House. On February 6th, the full House voted 410 to 4 to authorize an impeachment investigation into President Richard Nixon by the Judiciary Committee. Similarly, on the 8th of October 1998, the full House voted 258 to 176 for the Judiciary Committee to open an impeachment investigation of President Clinton. Now, Pelosi claims that there is no House precedent that the whole House vote before proceeding with an impeachment inquiry. Therefore, is sim- uh, that is uh, simply false. Um, other than declaring war, there's uh, no more serious undertaking by the House of Representatives in our constitutional republic. Because through impeachment, the House is charging a president with misconduct so serious that he should immediately be removed from office. In other words, the House is effectively seeking to neutralize the choice and the votes of the American people. There are occasions when that should be done. Now, also, when you have a a vote prior to uh, an impeachment inquiry, if you will, both sides of the political aisle have access to resources to help uh, discover what the uh, what the facts are. Well, that's an extraordinary action to begin without one, especially in a system of government based on people electing their own leaders. And it's also the reason that impeachment alone can't remove the president. That requires conviction by two thirds of the Senate. That's 67 senators, neither of the presidents who were impeached, Andrew Johnson in 1868 or Bill Clinton in 99, were convicted, and therefore they stayed in office. That's the the common trend. In an October 3rd letter, Kevin McCarthy asked for a vote of the full House. He reminded Pelosi that the Judiciary Committee report on the Clinton impeachment investigation said, because impeachment is delegated solely to the House of Representatives by the Constitution, the full House of Representatives should be involved in critical decision making regarding various stages of impeachment, end quote. An investigation to determine, in the words of the Clinton resolution, whether sufficient grounds exist for impeachment should be authorized by the body with the sole power of impeachment, the House of Representatives. 
Also, such a resolution should, as it did for the Clinton impeachment investigation, outline the rules under which it will be conducted. Those rules have not been outlined. McCarthy asked important questions that the speaker, uh, her announcement did not answer. Will the ranking uh, minority member of the investigation uh, investigating committees have the authority to issue subpoenas and to question witnesses or simply be ignored by the majority? Will the president's lawyers be able to attend all hearings and depositions to present evidence, to object to the admittance of evidence, to cross-examine witnesses or to recommend witnesses to be interviewed? Well, as McCarthy says, if Pelosi says no to these questions, then she'll be denying the president the bare minimum rights granted to his predecessor. Doing so would indicate that Pelosi and those uh, committees do not intend to provide the fundamental due process rights we extend even to those accused of wrongdoing in our courts. Well, all Americans have an interest in the integrity of our government and the legitimacy of its actions. Departing from precedent, single-handed directives, freewheeling, roving investigations by multiple committees, and running roughshod over the minority undermine that interest. Uh, on the other hand, that interest is served by the entire House considering and authorizing an impeachment inquiry, a transparent investigation, authority for both the majority and the minority committee members to investigate, subpoena, call witnesses, and outlining the scope of the investigation. Now, some on the uh, president's side of the ledger say that this isn't really about impeachment. It's about damaging the president. And if, in fact, a vote were to uh, take place and both sides had the opportunity to um, call witnesses, subpoena, and so on, uh, Joe Biden would be and his son would very likely be called uh, on to participate. Uh, so they're suggesting that this is a mechanism not to remove the president or to impeach him, but to um, weaken him for the 2020 elections. Well, America's founders didn't put impeachment into the Constitution as a partisan tool to be used for overturning an election for either the right, the left, the Democrats or the Republicans. How the process is conducted today will reveal who in the House of Representatives agreed with the founders, and we'll watch with great interest what happens next. In fact, in the letter the White House sent to the Speaker just yesterday, one of the the things that was said was, until this is an even-handed approach that begins with a vote, we will not cooperate. So the president was interviewed several times today and asked that question, and he said, yes, if it's a fair, um, fair process, and of course, um, that's in the eye of the beholder, we will uh, participate. So there you have that. Well, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency employee was arrested today on federal charges that he leaked classified national defense information to two journalists, one of them romantically involved with him. Henry Kyle Frez, a 30-year-old counterterrorism analyst who held a top-secret clearance at the DIA, had started there as a contractor in January of 2017 before working at the agency full-time. Well, between April and May of last year, he allegedly accessed classified intelligence reports, some of which were unrelated to his job duties, and leaked secret information regarding a foreign country's weapons systems to a reporter. According to court documents, the documents accused him of being romantically involved with one of the reporters to whom he uh, allegedly leaked the information. A criminal indictment said the reporter wrote at least eight articles from five compromised intelligence reports leaked by this individual. It said he retweeted a link to one of the articles that used the information he allegedly had provided. The first reporter then asked uh, if he'd be willing to speak to another reporter, according to the criminal indictment. He allegedly said he was down to help the second reporter if it helped the first reporter's progress. Well, the indictment also accused him of speaking about classified defense um, information to the second reporter via his cell phone on the 24th of September of this year. 
The disclosures reportedly contained information that could reasonably be expected to cause serious harm to the national security of the United States. All for a girlfriend. As laid out in today's indictment, Fries uh, was caught red-handed disclosing sensitive national security information for personal gain, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, John Demers, said. Fries betrayed the trust placed in him by the American people, a betrayal that risked harm, harming the national security of our nation. Well, neither of the reporters was identified by name in court documents, and the Justice Department declined to provide any additional details about the classified information that was leaked. Well, the Supreme Court returns this week for the beginning of its 2019-2020 term. They heard oral arguments today in three cases asking it to decide whether the definition of sex in U.S. law includes sexual orientation and gender identity. It may seem like just a semantic exercise, but there are significant differences in how that word is interpreted and applied. At issue is the meaning of the word sex in Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the primary federal law prohibiting discrimination in employment. The cases were brought by a gay child welfare service coordinator and a gay skydiving instructor in the first argument. And in the second argument, a male funeral home director who was fired after announcing he was transitioning to become a woman and refused to wear the masculine clothing he had agreed to wear when he was hired. A packed house was promised outside the Supreme Court building where people began lining up on Friday for a public seating. And inside the courtroom was just as busy with five lawyers appearing before the justices. Pamela Carlin, a professor of Stanford Law School, argued on behalf of the gay employees in Bostock versus Clayton County and Altitude Express versus Zarda. Jeffrey Harris, a lawyer with the firm uh, Consovoy McCarthy, made his Supreme Court debut representing the employees, employers rather in Bostock and Zarda. The American Civil Liberties uh, David Cole represented the transgender employee, while John Bursch of Alliance Defending Freedom, arguing for the person's Uh, employer in Harris Funeral Homes versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, the Supreme Court, as I mentioned, uh, has taken up a couple of issues. Uh, The justices are pondering the meaning of sex in federal statute and has uh, far-reaching implications, at least one of the two cases that they're, uh, they heard today. Some common themes from the justices' questions were what sex meant in 1964 when the court uh, should act when Congress could amend the law, uh, what this would mean for single-sex bathrooms, sports, and more. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the first to fire off a question. She brought up the fact that when Congress passed uh, Title VII as part of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, it couldn't have been in Congress's mind that discrimination because of sex meant discrimination based on sexual orientation. And she underscored the point by noting that um, homosexuality was at the time classified as a mental disorder in many states criminalized um, the practice. Well, Carlin admitted, the attorney, that that was true, calling it the days of Mad Men in reference to the hit television series, but said the court had interpreted Title VII to cover other things that weren't within Congress's mind, such as uh, sexual harassment or sex stereotyping. When uh, Harris took the lectern, he explained that sex and sexual orientation are independent and distinct characteristics and that Title VII requires courts to compare similarly situated people for different uh, differential treatment. Uh, another echoed this, saying that the um, the meaning of the word, whether you're male or female, not whether you're gay or straight, he argued that any doubt regarding the meaning of uh, the word in Title VII is removed by the history and related statutory 
statutes since. Now, since Justice um, Samuel Alito noted that Congress has considered various proposals to amend Title VII, and in fact, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act last spring, he asked whether the courts should leave this policy issue to the legislative branch. Well, Carlin, one of the attorneys, countered that a ruling that sex discrimination includes sexual orientation would be no different from the court's earlier rulings, finding male on male harassment and sex stereotyping were forms of sex discrimination. Well, Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out that roughly two dozen states have passed laws prohibiting employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, and many have at the same time provided robust protections for religious liberty. Well, Harris, the attorney, uh, picked up on the point, noting that Wisconsin was Um, hailed as a civil rights pioneer when it passed a law banning sexual orientation discrimination and employment back in 1982. Such laws would not have been necessary, he said, if Title VII's ban on sexual discrimination already included sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, Francisco also addressed this point, saying that Congress is better suited to weigh the competing interests at stake and address the need for religious and other exemptions. He suggested the Supreme Court should not short-circuit the democratic process and instead allow Congress to work out what changes, if any, the American people want to see in Title VII. The justices spent a lot of time talking about whether employer, employees' rather, interpretation of Title VII would spell doom for single-sex bathrooms, sex-specific dress codes, single-sex colleges, sports teams, shelters for battered women, and so on. Title VII, after all, is a statute promoting women's equality, Birch pointed out, and it and from Alliance Defending Freedom, and it allows employers to acknowledge that there are differences between men and women. But the ACLU's Cole tried to avoid answering these questions, eventually responding that one has to consider not just whether a single sex or sex specific policy differentiates, but whether it differentiates in a way that injures and whether a reasonable person would experience a significant or trivial harm. Um, It went back and forth from there. Justice Neil Gorsuch wanted to know how one decides what is reasonable. Carlin uh, replied that in idiosyncratic preference would void a dress code or bathroom policy. Anyone hoping for clarity after the day's arguments was left wanting. After two hours of oral arguments and dozens of questions, there was not uh, uh, much agreement among the justices. So we'll just have to wait. A decision is expected sometime in June on that question. Well, the United States is less competitive than it was a year ago, and the global economy remains hobbled by low productivity despite a decade of cheap money from central banks. And the World Economic Forum says on Wednesday in its latest assessment of the factors behind productivity and long-term economic growth, the organization best known for its annual gathering of the elites in the Swiss ski resort of Davos found Singapore overtaking the United States as the most competitive country, aided in no small part by its state-of-the-art infrastructure and strong cooperation between labor and management. The Global Competitive Report, which is now in its 40th year, said the U.S. is losing ground in measures such as healthy life expectancy and preparedness for the future skills needed for the 21st century. Hong Kong, the Netherlands, and Switzerland rounded out the top five places in the rankings. The report's index maps out the competitive landscape of 141 economies based on more than 100 indicators in a dozen categories. 
And Washington is adding 28 Chinese companies, government offices and security bureaus to a United States blacklist over their alleged role in facilitating human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang um, region. Monday's announcement targets some of China's top artificial intelligence companies in a similar way to the U.S. move against smartphone giant Huawei earlier this year and comes just days before crucial talks between the two sides. In a statement, the U.S. Commerce Department said these entities have been implicated in human rights violations and abuses in the, in the implementation of China's campaign of repression, mass arbitrary detention and high technology surveillance against Uyghurs, uh, Kaz- Kazakhs and other members of the Muslim minority in this area. Jin Jiang. For the last two and a half years, China has been detaining hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and other predominantly Muslim ethnic minorities in what Beijing alternately describes as voluntary de-radicalization camps and vocational training centers. Hmm. Former detainees have described them as closer to internment camps. However, the allegations of abuse are rampant, including in firsthand accounts given to CNN describing torture and forced political re-education under the threat of violence. Well, the largest utility in California began turning off the lights for millions of customers in the northern part of the Golden State earlier today, a shutoff that could last for days due to what officials are calling an unprecedented wildfire danger that could lead to explosive blazes. Pacific Gas and Electric said early early today, rather, it implemented the first phase of a public safety power shutoff ahead of its widespread severe wind event impacting 513,000 customers in 22 countries at midnight. A second phase will occur at noon, impacting 234,000 customers in seven additional counties. The safety of our customers and the communities we serve is our most important responsibilities, which uh, which is why PG&E has decided to turn the power off to customers during this widespread severe wind event. Let's see, a quote from PG&E's senior vice president of electric operations, Michael Lewis, in a statement. We understand the effects this event will have on our customers and appreciate the public's patience as we do what is necessary to keep our communities safe and reduce the risk of wildfires. Well, officials said the third phase of shutoffs is being considered by the utility's southernmost uh, service area that would impact um, up to 42,000 customers. The power outages were expected to affect um, about 2 million people overall in parts of 34 northern, central, and coastal California uh, counties. The decision to turn off power was based on forecasts of dry, hot, and windy weather, including potential fire risks. The utility said, speaking to its customers. Well, America's elite institutions are creating or catering rather to communist China. The NBA provided the latest example Sunday night when League Commissioner Adam Silver apologized for Houston Rockets general manager uh, Daryl Morey's tweet in support of pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Rocket star James Harden followed suit and apologized to China for Morey's tweets. The New York Nets new billionaire owner uh, Joseph Tsai, he slammed Mori in a Facebook post on Sunday night. Uh, the co-founder of uh, Chinese Internet titan Alibaba described Mori's tweet as so damaging to the relationship with our fans in China, adding that the hurt that this uh, incident has caused will take a long time to repair. That's also uh, translated to mean leverage. China Daily, the communist government's propaganda arm, used the NBA's conciliatory reaction to warn other companies to learn a lesson The big Chinese market is open to the world, but those who challenge China's core interests and hurt China's people's feelings cannot make a profit from it. Well, a rather interesting position for the People's Republic of China to take. 
Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She is with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the uh, strike at General uh, General Motors um, and whether or not it reflects the declining power of unions. She'll join us uh, in the um, uh, on the program tomorrow. We'll also talk with Andrew McCarthy, author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig and destroy a presidency. We'll find out what he has to say in view of what's happened since his book was published by Encounter. Both guests will be on the program tomorrow. Well, Syrian Christians have a message for us here in the U.S., and that is don't abandon us now. Well, not long after the defeat of the Islamic State in the area, Syrian Christians warned that U.S. military withdrawal from the Kurdish-controlled region, which the United States is now done, announced yesterday by the president, will expose them to danger. They say the expected military invasion by Turkey and the possible confrontation with the Kurds might oblige Christians in the region to leave. That's a quote from Joseph Kassab. He's president of the Supreme Council of the Evangelical Community in Syria and Lebanon. This means one more tragedy to the Christian presence in Syria. Seeking to honor his campaign promises to extract America from endless war, the president yielded to Turkey's demand to establish a safe zone along the southern border with Syria. Since August, the United States and Turkey administered a joint buffer zone patrol in the Kurdish majority area. Well, Turkey's objectives are twofold. First, they want to resettle up to two million Syrian refugees currently residing in Turkey. And secondly, they want to clear the border of Kurdish fighters linked to the Kurdistan Workers Party, or PKK, deemed a terrorist entity by both Ankara and Washington. Well, Turkey's president, uh, Erdogan, had threatened to establish a 20-mile corridor unilaterally, frustrated by United States cooperation with Kurdish fighters belonging to the PKK. Well, Kurds number approximately 30 million. They're located primarily in Turkey and Syria and Iraq, as well as in Iran. They're one of the largest stateless peoples in the world, even though within Iraq, the Constitution has designated Kurdistan as an autonomous region. Well, affiliated Arab fighters were previously given residence in Kurdish-majority Afrin. That resulted in the desecration of Christian and Yazidi places of worship. It's very possible that the American withdrawal from the region will lead to the extinction of Christianity from the region. Ashdeep Barrow, former director of the Evangelical Alliance of Kurdistan in Iraq, noting the safety there for Christians and other minorities. How can another country, Turkey, enter using the pretext of liberation from terrorism? Will the target be only terrorism or undesirable people? Leaving the area without proper care will lead to another disaster. Well, the Kurdish-controlled area of northeast Syria stretches 300 miles from the Euphrates River to the Iraqi border. Approximately 750,000 people live there, including estimates between 40,000 and 100,000 Christians. Over 700,000 Christians have fled Syria since 2011. And while some warn that uh, further displacement, others fear an even greater threat. In fact, um, uh, a statement issued by the Syriac Military Council, a Christian component of the Syrian Defense Forces, uh, reported uh, as reported by the Christian Broadcasting Network, says Turkey aims to kill and destroy us and to finish the genocide against our people. We hope and pray that we, as we uh, have defended the world against ISIS, the world will not abandon us now. The Christian community in uh, Kamishli, on the border of Turkey near Iraq, issued its own statement saying the Turkish regime is based on armed extremist and radical groups that commit crimes against civilians and humanity. 
The co-chair of the Syriac Union Party goes on to say such threats endanger the life of Syriac people in the region. Well, following the outbreak of the Syrian civil war in 2011, Kurds created People's Protection Units, which eventually became the backbone of the SDF. Now, that's a coalition that was assembled by the U.S. in 2015 to fight ISIS. In 2017, the U.S. started arming the YGP, or rather YPG, uh, which enraged Turkey. Well, the largely successful campaign against ISIS cost about 11,000 SDF lives. This is Syrian uh, peoples and Kurds. The SDF says it holds 2,000 ISIS fighters from 55 nations, including 1,000 Europeans. Trump has said that Turkey will uh, take responsibility for them. The Kurds promised to resist the Turkish incursion, making them unable to continue guarding the prisons. Well, Christian voices are also keen to preserve the unique peace achieved between Kurds, Arabs and Christians there. Since 2014, a social charter was ensured that democratic governance, women's rights and freedom of worship would uh, prevail. Well, the town of Kobani on the Turkish border hosts a, a brethren church composed of converts from Islam. Around 20 families worship there and the church pastor uh, Zani Bakr arrived last year from Afrin, displaced by an earlier Turkish incursion. One Syrian Christian leader issued a plea to our president. Please seek God. Ask God before you make your decision so that Christianity is not eradicated from Syria and from historical Mesopotamia. That's the co-chair of the Syrian Democratic Council representative in the United States, Bassam Ishaq, in the USA Today, or rather USA. Uh, He told CBN News following the um, February threat to withdraw U.S. troops by the president, we don't want a country where citizenship and rights are based on ethnic identities or religious identity. We want all Syrians to be equal. Well, he and his colleagues across um, faiths have received the support of the Family Research Council here in the U.S. Tony Perkins, an evangelical advisor to the White House, tweeted his opposition to the president's decision, warning it would endanger the prospects of um, true religious freedom in the Middle East. His colleague, Travis Weber, vice president for policy and government affairs, told the Christian Post that the region can serve as a safe haven, preventing the flight of the persecuted to Europe and the United States, not only Will our withdrawal destabilize the region, he said, but it signals to the world that we don't care about the religious freedom they have built. Well, other American evangelical critics include Mike Huckabee and Pat Robertson, who warned Trump uh, risks losing the mandate of heaven if there was a mandate of heaven. Senate Republicans Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham joined Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in condemning the president's move. And the bipartisan U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom tweeted its deep concern uh, Trump has responded to the criticism by citing his great and unmatched wisdom, warning that if Turkey does anything off limits, he will once again destroy its economy. Well, U.S. economic sanctions were part of his high profile effort to secure the release of Pastor Andrew Brunson, held uh, two years in Turkey on terrorism related charges. In defense of Christians, a nonpartisan organization committed to the preservation and protection of Christians in the Middle East expressed great concern about the future of Christians and Yazidis, but is encouraged, uh, was encouraged rather by the president's threats. President Erdogan has surely not forgotten the economic ramifications of sanctions, says the president of IDC, an organization there. This would be the third Turkish military incursion into Syria since 2016. Turkey defended its policy, saying local Kurdish leaders appreciated the support. 
But critics accuse Turkey of engineering demographic changes to dilute the Kurdish population on its border. Affiliated Arab fighters were previously given residence in Kurdish majority Afrin, resulting in desecration, as I mentioned, of Christian and Yazidi places of worship. The international community hasn't issued support for the Turkish plan for resettling Syrian refugees. The United Nations insists first on a comprehensive political agreement and for refugees to return to their original locations even those who have no designated original location. Similarly, for Kassab, based in Beirut and overseeing evangelical communities in Syria and Lebanon, territorial integrity is vital. The U.S. administration finally decided to leave the Kurds in the Turkish hands, he said. But Syria must be left in the hands of the Syrians. And a concerted action by the international community is the only way to put an end to this ugly War. Well, everyone would like to see an end to this ugly war. But as we um, are connected to the Christians in uh, Syria and concerned about the justice for those uh, who are non-Christians in that area, particularly religious minorities, uh, we need to pray and urge our leaders to make wise decisions that will benefit the United States and also protect those people who have given so much to protect the interests of the United States in fighting and ultimately defeating ISIS. Do keep that in mind. Once again, tomorrow we'll hear from Rachel Gresler. She'll talk with us about the GM strike and what that says about the unions moving forward. We'll also talk with Andrew McCarthy, author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig and destroy a presidency that began essentially before uh, the numbers were counted. We'll get into all of that tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.